here in person or joining us online. Uh, excited to be able to open up God's Word with you. This morning, we're going to be closing up our, our series that we've been doing that we've called The Foundation of the Church as we've looking, looked at different passages within uh, the book of Acts, and we're going to wrap that up this morning looking at uh, the sufferings of the church. And it's going to take us a little bit to get there, but we will get there um, as we're in our text this morning, Acts 14, if you have a Bible or a device or whatever you'd like to follow along. Uh, Paul is in the midst of his mission, first missionary journey, okay? He's, um, and as he's gone along in this missionary journey with Barnabas, every time they've gone into a city, the first place that they go is to the synagogue. That's the first place they go to share the gospel, and they open up the Old Testament, and they show how, how Jesus was, was, was promised long, long ago, and he has come. Now what we're about to look at, we're about to look at when they enter into Lystra. And Lystra is a very different place because seems as though there's been, the Jewish faith never reached there. These people know nothing of the one uh, true God. So we're going to see it's a very unique situation in Luke, uh, in Acts chapter 14. Let's look there now. Acts chapter 14 and verse 8. Now at um, Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he is crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what, the, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was their chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of a like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you um, rains from heaven and from and fruitful seasons, and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even when these words, these scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word before us. Uh, we ask now that you would allow your word to do its work on all of our hearts, uh, including uh, this preacher this morning, for we all need you. And so we pray, bless our time in your word. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded of a, a documentary I saw quite a number of years ago called The Living Goddess. It's, it's about these little girls in Nepal who become goddesses. Um, and I want to read, not, I don't want to talk about the documentary, but I just want to read a news article that came out shortly after the documentary. The documentary is a, was about 
Sanjani Shakya, who was one of these goddesses, and this is what it said. The title of it was, Immortal No More, Goddess Retires at Age 11. Wanted, four-year-old who is perfect to spend the next six or seven years as a goddess. Reason for opening, the retirement of the current position occupant, 11-year-old Sanjani Shakya, whose eligibility has lapsed since she has been symbolically married off to a fruit. Shakya was one of Nepali's 12 Kumares, or living goddesses, girls believed to be the manifestation of the Hindu goddess Kali. They are chosen between the ages of two and four from an elite Buddhist caste and must well be pretty much perfect. They have to fill 32 perfections, um, among them perfect skin, the gait of a swan, a body shaped like a bunion tree, thighs like a deer, cheeks like a lion, not afraid of the dark, and a neck like a conch shell. The Kalis Kali is believed to leave the girls' bodies as they reach puberty, officially when they are married off in an elaborate symbolic ceremony. For Shakya, her days as a deity are over. We hear a story like this, and in some ways, in our, with our Western ears, we're kind of shocked. It's, it's hard for us to even comprehend what's going on here and what these people are doing in Nepal. But at the same time, if, if some of those Nepali people were here with us this morning, in some ways, they might be similarly shocked by what we do, that, that we're gathered here just worshiping one God. It, it, seem, it would seem so incredibly foreign to them. And it's into that type of culture that Paul and Barnabas find themselves in, in Acts chapter 14. So let's go there and let's look. So they, they come into the city and they begin to um, share the gospel as Paul begins to preach. And then he sees this man in, in verse 8, a man who's been crippled from birth. And he looks at him, verse 9, and he, he sees that the man had, had faith to be made well. So what does Paul say, verse 10? He says, stand upright on your feet. And what did the man do? He sprang up and he began walking. The, the, the incredible takes place here, doesn't it? I mean, this is a man who's been crippled from birth, and, and not only is he healed, but he's like fully healed, something that he has never done, he's never even had any practice doing, he's able to do immediately without any issues. And, and all these Lyconians, they're around, they're looking at what's happening, and they're in awe, and what do they do? Verse 11, when they saw what Paul had done, what do they do? They lift up their voices saying in their own language. So Paul and Barnabas, get this, they don't know what's being said. They don't quite know what's going on. We'll get there in a second. And they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And then verse 13, the priest of Zeus, what does he do? He, he runs back to, his, his, to the temple and he brings oxen and garlands to the gates and they want to make a sacrifice. This seems like a strange occasion. Actually, for these Lyconians, this wouldn't be that strange of a thing. In fact, they'd kind of been waiting for this day. Now, most of us, we don't know Ovid's Metamorphoses that well, and nor should we necessarily. Um, but it was written quite a few years before this, and it told the story of Zeus and Hermes, and how one day in that very region, they had come around uh, in human form looking for somebody to care for them, somebody to reach out to them. And they went from house to house, and everybody turned them away. And then finally, they, they found their way to the home of Bacchus and Philemon, an elderly couple who, who invited them in and lavished. You know, they had very little, and yet they gave them as much and everything that they could. And then finally, Zeus and Hermes, they revealed themselves to them, and they said, we are gods, and this wicked neighborhood shall be punished as it deserves. None, nobody else welcomed us in except for you. And so they lead them up on the, the top of this hill, and they see the whole region flooded and destroyed. And yet right there where, where their little humble house was, a temple just emerges out of the ground. 
the, the Laconians would have known the story. And whenever they see Paul and, and Barnabas coming in, they see this incredible thing. They wonder, oh, they, th- this may be <laughs> Zeus and Hermes among We don't want to do what those who came before us did. And we saw what happened to them. And so they begin to reach out to them as though they are gods. Now, this whole time, as I said a moment ago, Paul and Barnabas, they don't quite know what's going on. There's a lack of translation going on here. There's the cultural barriers that have to be crossed. It's kind of like whenever uh, com- U.S. companies, they like go overseas and they, they try to mark marketing stuff. There's been so many slip-ups and so many bad things. When, when KFC went into China, you know, they had that saying, saying finger licking good, right? When it got translated into Chinese, um, it came out as eat your fingers off. And, and you know, that, that wouldn't be so good, Right? Or Coors, you know, the beer company, whenever they tried to translate, they had a, a, a slogan of turn it loose. And when it got translated into Spanish, it came off as loosen your bowels. We won't go into the depths of that one. Um, and Pepsi, they used to have one, um, we, we bring you back to life. And when they, they took it to China, it came out as we bring your ancestors back from the grave. I mean, can you imagine? Or Parker Pins, you know, they, they had a saying, it won't leak in your pocket and embarrass you. But when translated into Spanish, it came off as, it won't leak in your pocket and make you pregnant. Um, you know, there, there's been all these times, you know, we try to cross these barriers. Things don't always come out quite like you're thinking. And for, for Paul and Barnabas, they're kind of in this situation. What's, you know, this like takes a few minutes to try to figure out what's even going on here. And as soon as they realize at verse 14, what do they do? As soon as they realize it, they tear their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also, we're we're men of nature just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things and turn to the living God, to turning to the one true God who made everything, right? And and what we see here, it's, it's very interesting. That it's a very basic introduction to the gospel right here. It's not the same way that when, when they went into the synagogues and would share the gospel and they'd open up the Old Testament and, and they'd show how Jesus was proclaimed. They couldn't do that in Lystra. They had no basis to know that. So they, they start at the very beginning. They start telling them about the one true living God. They define that God is one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In verse 16, that has allowed the nations to walk in their ways. And he hasn't left them without a witness. They're, they're able to look at, at the good creation around them, the, the, the way that the rains have been provided for them and the crops grow. They're able to enjoy, as it says, food and gladness. He, he's, he's trying to communicate to the Lyconians a very foreign truth, okay? That there is one true God who made everything. And that would have been so foreign to them. And you know, it's, it's very good what, what Paul and Barnabas did here, because if they'd have just jumped right in and tried to tell them, oh, we want to tell you about Jesus, another God, they, they might have worshipped him, but they would have just worshipped him along with their other gods. They would not have worshipped him alone. So we learned something here, I think, a little bit, and we've t- been talking a lot about sharing the gospel. And we learned a little something telling just with the way Paul and Barnabas handle things here is First of all, they don't compromise the gospel. It would have been very easy to allow these people to continue to worship them, right? Must have felt good in, in, in some, some way. Um, secondly, they, they would have actually 
They might have been set up to, to, in some ways, in the future, preach the gospel even more boldly because they would have had all these people and they'd been sitting above them, in a sense, and would have had their undivided attention. And instead, what they do must have insulted, must have insulted them, right? I mean, here they are. They're, they're all lavishing these things on, ready to worship them and say, nope, nope, we're not God. You got it all wrong. How the whole town must have in some way been embarrassed. But as Paul and Barnabas, as they begin to tell them about the gospel, they do kind of contextualize things, right? It's not the same sermon that Paul preached everywhere else. He starts, as I said, with that very basic. He kind of almost goes back to Genesis 1, talking about this one true living God. You know, turn to this living God. Turn away from these vain things, these vain gods that you have. You see, the Laconians, they needed to hear the same good news of the gospel, but they needed to hear that good news differently, okay? John Stott put it this way. He says, we need to learn here from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the gospel news of Jesus Christ, nor is there any need to, but we need to begin where people are. And he gives a list, you know, what constitutes authentic humanness might be a place that connects with people. Their universal quest, our universal quest for transcendence, for something bigger, better, more grand out there, a hunger for love or community, search for freedom, longing for personal significance. But wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. So there's the setup. Now what happens? <laughs> what happens is we find out that these Laconians are incredibly fickle people. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, the English reformer, he once said, do not trust the cheering for those persons who shout will shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. Okay. Winston Churchill said something similar when he was asked, don't, doesn't it give you a thrill that all these people come to hear you speak? And he says, yeah, it is quite flattering, uh, but whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. You know, people are very fickle, aren't they? They very easily go from almost worship to anarchy, and so what happens to Paul? Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. We don't know how much time has passed between verses 18 and 19, but some time has passed and, and these people have been following, these Jewish believers, they've been following Paul and persecuting him along the way. They, they, they drove him out of Pisidian Antioch. Um, and, and then in Iconium, they'd actually attempted, they were about to attempt to stone him there, but he got out of town right before it. And now they've followed him up and, and now they're in Lystra and they stir up this crowd and these people who, who were once ready to worship Paul and Barnabas, suddenly they're ready to join them in stoning them. They're very fickle. These people, no doubt, they were, must have been offended in some way by Paul and Barnabas. They've been made to look foolish, but in some ways they're just fickle people. Fickle people like you and I who, who easily go from one thing of worship to the next. You may think that sounds a little strange, but isn't that what we do? We become, you and I, maybe I'm just speaking about myself, but we become fixated on that one thing, that one thing that we have to have, that one thing that we need to accomplish, right? Or that one thing that we hope 
will take place or whatever it is, and we fixate on those things, and we get it, and we celebrate, and then we move on, and we forget about it, and it goes into the past. We're very fickle. These things that we want, thought would, would fulfill everything, we find out come up empty. So what do they do? Verse 19, they stoned him and dragged him out of the city. We're reminded of 2 Corinthians 11. Do you remember what Paul said there? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The day and night I was adrift at sea. And Paul lists a whole bunch of other things. But here we see where that once I was stoned took place. Right here in Lystra. Um, later on, about a year after this took place, he wrote Galatians. And we read this. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is just a year after he'd been stoned. No, no doubt, I can't help but think this is part of what Paul is thinking of whenever he says that. This, these marks of the body, the, the stigmata of Jesus. You might have heard that word before. You might have seen the movies or whatever. And, and these, you, know, you, the, you, know, the, you get the scars of Jesus and stuff on your body. That's not at all what Paul is talking about here. No doubt he's thinking about those scars that must still be on his body, even from his stoning and whatever other sufferings had taken place up until uh, that point. Now, we're not going to get into the gritty details of stoning, but we need to understand that Paul was really stoned. Can you imagine how terrible he must have looked? Can you imagine the scars that must have been on his body, the blood? He's dragged out to the garbage heap at the edge of the city because he appeared to be dead. They thought he was dead. And we need to pause for a moment as we just think about what happened to Paul and be reminded of where Paul came from. That this was once what Paul used to do. Okay? You remember back to the stoning of Stephen, Paul was there and, and he cast his vote against Stephen. Remember in Acts 9, we, 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 we preached on it a few weeks ago, what was Paul doing whenever Jesus came to him, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what Paul used to do. What, what these people who were doing, who, found, who followed him from city in Antioch uh, to, to Iconium and now to Lystra, they were doing precisely what he was once doing. It's precisely what he was doing when he was on that road to Damascus and Jesus came to him and called him. Previously, Paul would have done exactly the same thing. Then verse 20, first part. The disciples, they gather around him. They think he must be dead, okay? I'm reminded of Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it, you should. You remember what Miracle Max says about Wesley? It just so happens that your friend is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And though Paul appears dead, he's not. He's alive. The disciples gather around him. They, they likely are thinking, you know, that this man who led us to Jesus, he, he's gone. And they gather around him and he, what does the text, text say? He, he rose up. I mean, now we don't know all the details. Maybe they helped him up a bit. I'm not exactly sure. But he just gets up after a stoning. He gets up and he walks right back into the city. Can you imagine the residents of Lystra? 
looking out, I don't know if they had curtains or not, but can you imagine them looking out their windows through their curtains and all? You know, if, if they were impressed with Paul uh, back with the healing of that man, what must they be thinking now? That the dead man Paul is now walking back into the city. Now, he wasn't really dead. This isn't a resurrection. Um, but it is miraculous, nonetheless, at, at what takes place as, as he walks back into the city. Now, our text doesn't end there, right? Uh, what, what does he do? He entered the city, verse 20, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, maybe it's just me. If, if I had just been stoned, I would probably take a few days off or something. You know, like you know, we could have a few days break or, you know, like rest. There, there, there was no rest for the Apostle Paul. What does he do? The next morning, he gets up. And he makes his way to Derby, some 35 plus, maybe 40 miles away, a couple of days travel. And he starts going there. Why? Because he must preach the gospel. He was going to take to them too in Derby. He wanted to take the gospel to them as well. It doesn't matter the persecution. It doesn't matter the suffering. It doesn't matter the tribulations that Paul suffered. He didn't miss a beat. Persecution and suffering didn't slow him down. He must preach the gospel. Now, if, if, that's, not, if that's not enough, look at verse 21. So he went to Derby, he preached the gospel in that city, he made many disciples, and then what did Paul and Barnabas do? They returned to Lystra. They returned to the place that had stoned him. And why did they turn there? They returned there to strengthen the skulls, encourage them, and appoint elders there. He goes back and he spends some time with them. He goes back to the place that stoned him. He, he wasn't scared to go there. And then where does he go? Then from there, he, he goes to Iconium, the place where they were about ready to stone him before, to do the same thing, to encourage the faith of the disciples, to, to build them up, to appoint elders. And then he goes back to the city in Antioch, the very place that all of this persecution began. It's incredible when you think about it, isn't it? The path that he took. And as he was going back to, to Lystra, as he was going back to Iconium and city in Antioch, look at what he says, verse 22, at the very end. Saying, he is telling them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what he was telling them. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's a good person to hear that from, isn't he? He's certainly been and certainly went through those tribulations. And in a way, what he's basically letting the people of Lystra and Iconium and city in Antioch know is, you, sh you know my sufferings, you know my persecution, you, you know my tribulations, and you should to some degree expect some of the same. I don't know about you, but I think, Paul, how did you do it? How, how do you just get back up and go back in the city? How do you then just go on the next day? How do you then come back through the very place that had tried to kill you? And I think a part of it, Paul remembers who he was. He remembers that he was the person who used to do the persecuting. He was the one who was trying to kill the church. Look back at verse 15. Remember what he said, men... Why are you doing these things? We also are men of a like nature with you. We're, we're, we're like you. I think Paul sums it up pretty well in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is some 20 years after this occurrence. 
And what does Paul tell his son in the faith, Timothy? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul understands where he came from, what he was saved from. He understands also the continuing struggles that he even has as a believer, even at that point, that even as an apostle, as, as these sins have been peeled back, even as he's, as he's looking more and more like Jesus, he keeps pulling back the layers and he finds out that there is more and more sin beneath. He, Paul, knew what he had been saved from. Okay? Paul knew how good the good news is. Do you, do we, as we gathered here this morning, do, do we really understand how good the good news is for us? You remember, it's not like we are in a better place than Paul was whenever he was saved. We were just as lost as was Paul. And Paul understood the gravity of of his sin, the gravity of, of his past, the, 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 even the sin in the present. He, he knew what he was saved from, and as a result, he couldn't help but share the gospel, even if it meant for him more tribulation, even if it meant more suffering. He didn't go running into it. I mean, don't get me wrong, okay, in Iconium, the former city, he, he left in advance of what he knew was coming of a stoning, okay? So it's not like he goes running into it, but he also doesn't completely avoid it either. He wouldn't avoid it. If he had to choose between it and preaching the gospel, I think you know which one he would choose, preaching the gospel. Um, I'm reminded of the guy who created the Flaming Hot Cheeto. Um, it's a great transition, isn't it? Um, from a very serious moment. Um, Richard Montanez, he, he was a janitor... Um, in um, a Frito-Lay factory where they make Cheetos, okay? And one day he was going through there and the, the, whatever, the line that made Cheetos was down, okay? And so there was a bunch of toes without chi, okay? So you put chi on the toes and it makes Cheetos, right? And so he decided to take some of those toes home, which sounds really kind of gross, right? But, but he takes some of those toes home to experiment and experiments with adding chili powder and whatnot. And the next thing you know... We have Flaming Hot Cheetos. He became an executive in PepsiCo Corporation, um, the um, owner of Frito-Lay that made Cheetos, right? And he was, he's been well known for being incredibly generous, especially to the Latino community that he came from, and this is what he said. He said, Latinos who have made it like myself have a responsibility to open doors to younger generations and teach them that they can do it. I do it because I can, and I do it, get this, I do it because I know what it is like to be hungry. I know what it is like to be hungry. Paul knew what it was like to be hungry. Okay? He knew what it was like to be lost in his sins. He knew the one who had bought him. He knew the one who still loved him, who still accepted him, and still covered him with his blood despite his even continuing struggle with sin as we all do. Paul knew what he was saved from. Do you? Do we know that? Do we know? Do we really understand? I'll ask the question again, how good the good news of the gospel is. And Paul knew that without that good news, he'd be utterly lost. He knew that without that good news, there was no hope for him. He knew how, how crucial the gospel was. It was nothing to trifle with. It was and is urgent in these moments of tribulation, of suffering that we may experience now for sharing the gospel, he thought were 
and are but momentary. I'm reminded of what my, one of my seminary professors, Richard Pratt, um, he used to, he said it quite a few times during my three years of seminary. He'd say, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know if you'd say disappointed, but surprised, maybe, I think disappointed, that RTS, that was the seminary I graduated from, at least at that point, from his knowledge, had yet to produce a martyr. And I remember that striking me as, as it should, pretty heavy, you know? Um, and then I'm reminded of, of Lean. Um, for my three years of seminary, Lean sat right beside me for three years. 90% of our classes for three solid years, he sat right beside me. We often ate lunch together, talked together regularly, very good friend. Um, he was from Taiwan. He was a military officer in Taiwan in his late 30s, if I recall correctly, when he came to know Jesus. His whole family abandoned him. They would have nothing to do with him. And he chose Jesus. And he pursued Jesus all the way to the United States to come to the U.S. for training. Okay? And he enjoyed the moments of the cushy life in the U.S. He went on to do some doctoral work for a little while. But the calling was too heavy on him. And he left that before he got his Ph.D. to go to China to serve in the underground church to train pastors there. A couple of years ago, he sent me this in an email. He said, um, in the end of March, I was in the Sichuan province, the place of a recent earthquake. And while I was teaching, over 40 policemen came in and I was arrested. The school was closed. Um, and then maybe the most shocking place is then what he, what he wrote next and changed to another place. Do, do you hear what happened? 40 policemen come in. He was arrested, thrown in jail. And so they had to move the school to another place so he could keep on teaching. I hear that, and I wonder about my own, my own desire for my own comfort, my own lack of desire as I share the gospel to in any way come into any sort of conflict with anybody, right? My trepidation sometimes in sharing Jesus because how is it going to affect this or that relationship? And I'm sure you feel that same thing too. Why do we avoid it so much? These momentary but little sufferings that, that, that we might be experiencing. Where, do, where does all this lead us? Where does all this take us? I, I think it should lead us to where it led Paul. Ultimately, as we read the story and as we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we, we can't help but see the calling upon all of us to share the gospel. To share the gospel. And we must. And if we really know the gospel, we'll share it. And it's whenever we don't understand how good the good news of the gospel is, that's when we fail to share it. When we, we don't see how good it really is in our life, we don't really understand how from the depths from which we've really been saved, because knowing and understanding the gospel leads to sharing it. Those who've truly been changed by the gospel, who are continuing to be transformed by the gospel as we all should be, can't help but share it with others. And Paul knew the good news of Jesus in his life. He knew his sin. He, he knew what he had been saved from, and he knew what he had been saved for. A mission. A mission to share the gospel. To share the gospel. Do you know the good news of Jesus in your life?
Do you know your own sin? You know what you have been saved from? Do you know what you've been saved for? A mission to share the gospel. And we shouldn't be at all surprised if in the midst of all that, that some suffering and some tribulation and some difficulties come our way. Now, it's probably not going to look like my good friend Lean, and we're probably not going to get thrown in prison. It's most certainly probably not going to look like the Apostle Paul. We're probably not going to be stoned. But we shouldn't be surprised that when we share the gospel, that we might find that we suffer a bit too. Maybe a little. Maybe a lot. But hopefully and prayerfully, we'll be able to say with, with the Apostle Paul, through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you the privilege that we can in some way, maybe they're not going to look as stark as those marks of Christ that, that Paul had, but we too, we too, it has been granted to you, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you believe it? may not be one that we are excited to believe, right? But I hope you believe it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as the Apostle Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I must admit, even as i am been preaching on it and talking about it, it's sometimes hard for us to truly wrap our hands around. We're so used to doing everything in our power to keep any sort of suffering and tribulation away. And the idea that that we should not even fear it and might even should expect it as we share the good news of the gospel with others. It's a hard pill in some ways to swallow. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you be doing the work on our hearts, convincing us more today of how incredibly good the good news of the gospel is, how good it is for us, how how awesome it is that we have been saved. Would you help us to truly sense that? That we would therefore have such a heart's longing to share the gospel with those who don't know you, with those who are lost, with those who are perishing without you. that we can't help but share the good news, that we can't help but share the gospel with others. Would you send us out as a church, as a people who are not trepidatious about, about what the implications of us sharing the gospel may be, not trepidatious about the difficulty it may cause in relationships, 
not concerned that it may make us a little bit uncomfortable. But that we would go forward as you have called us to. Sharing the gospel. Taking it to Judea and to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And we pray this in the matchless name of the one who saved us, Jesus. Amen.